0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Nathan Barry, founder and CEO of ConvertKit. In this episode, we talked about what drove Nathan to start ConvertKit, how switching to focus on a niche has impacted the company's product strategy and churn rate, and how it helped Nathan to focus on the right customer feedback. We also discussed when it doesn't make sense to worry about churn, the concept of gradual engagement and how ConvertKit applied it in their product, and why Nathan thinks every company is doing onboarding wrong. ConvertKit also publicly share the revenue, churn numbers, and more at convertkit.bearmetrics.com for you to check anytime. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest-growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth.
1: How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to to retention and
0: engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable and growing. Strategies, tactics and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Nathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to have you today. Uh, for the listeners, Nathan is the founder and CEO of ConvertKit, an email marketing company for creators that now does over $10 million in annual recurring revenue. Uh, prior to ConvertKit, Nathan held various freelance and UX designer roles. So my first question for you, Nathan, is why email marketing and creators? What drove you to start ConvertKit?
1: Yeah, those are good questions. So I got started with email marketing let's see, back in 2012. I was writing an ebook. Designing products, so the ebook was about how to design iPhone applications. Started building an audience around that, and I used Mailchimp to do that, and I, I built an email list of almost 800 people. Launched my ebook; it sold super well. Did 12 grand in sales in the first day, and I was blown away. The one thing that really stood out to me was um, how, like, how many sales came through from email as opposed to you know the social channels and the website and stuff like that. So. I was really, really surprised by that, and, um, you know, from there, I thought, okay, let's go all in on email, and then that drove me down this path of learning all the best practices, and then going from there, I started to learn about, okay, here's all the limitations of MailChimp, and especially only three or four months later, in January of 2013, that I decided to start ConvertKit to
0: Nice. So really scratching your own itch. Uh, Cause that was going to be one of my other questions was like with MailChimp and so many other dominant players in the time, it was, it must've been like a very brave decision as well to say, okay, we're going to go out and do something better and beat them. But I think the one thing that you've done amazingly well really is your product marketing is on point. Like you're really speaking to a specific niche. And was that just purely because like you were a creator yourself, you decided, okay, like this is an untapped market because they're not serving this need and like, what was the main motivation then to really like double down on that niche?
1: Yeah. The switch to that niche really had to do with, well, first I was realizing that building a, a software product is to try to serve an entire um, category to try to serve everyone is, is really a fool's errand getting traction. when you are just like, yeah, we do email marketing is really, really hard, especially because there's so many other products out there, right? So many email products in particular. And so I like you and I could sit here and we could list off probably a dozen, two dozen, I don't know, email products that do over 10 million a year in revenue. Like there's really a lot. And so we just weren't getting traction. We weren't able to differentiate. It was really hard to write marketing copy, like everything. And a friend of mine really said, hey, you got to focus in on a specific niche. And that was advice that I knew, but I hadn't done anything with. Like I would actually give that advice out to other people when they were talking about building an audience or writing a book or something. I would say like, Oh, you've got to narrow the topic down. Focus on a specific niche. You know, know exactly who you're solving the problem for. Yeah. So with that, I ended up once I started taking that advice, everything got easier. So it took us two years to get to 2000 a month in revenue. And then after implementing that change, you know, six months later, we were at 15,000 a month in revenue. And six months after that, we were at a hundred thousand a month. So wow. there was That's- a lot that went into that. Obviously you can't just like pick a niche and then, you know, you have a 1 million ARR business, but it, it played a huge role to go all in on. Um, all in. First it was professional bloggers. And then we eventually broadened that to include all
0: creators. Cool. I, I want to go deeper on this then as well, because definitely it is something that you hear about so often people hear the advice always. And I think for founders, it's always sort of a, a, like a little bit of nervous feeling. It's like, what if you pick the wrong niche? Like, why am I narrowing my market? And you have all these negative connotations when you go to it, but time and time again, you hear this advice, like pick a niche, focus, double down and you'll see results. And obviously listening to you now as well, there's proof in the pudding. So what was the process like when you went to go down and spend, pick a specific niche, like you pick bloggers to begin with, you said, and then you really uh, realized at the end it was creators. But how did you go about deciding that? What was sort of the research that went into it?
1: So I, you know, I was a blogger myself. I lived in the space. And so I tried to think of, okay, what are, let's just go to specific people. And I can actually still list them today. It would be people like Chris Gillibo, who's an author and blogger. I really thought of him as an author. You know, someone else is a guy named Joel Runyon who ran a, a popular fitness and, and paleo recipe blog site. Um, I'm trying to think who else, but there was, there was a decent number of authors in particular who had these, you know, blogs, online businesses, and, and then wrote and sold books as well. And I said, okay, that's ConvertKit's ideal customer. They're, they know the value of email. Well, let's try to get more of those. So then I chose email marketing for authors as our market and just ran with that. Changed the headline. I don't know what it was before, but I changed it to email marketing for authors. And then uh, a couple things happened right away. One, the sales copy on the marketing site became so much easier to write because all the examples could just be author-focused. It was remarkable. Like, it was unlocking a copywriting superpower because it was just like, oh man, it, it all just flows easily instead of trying to like, Broadly, right for all different kinds of creators. Yeah. Um, the next thing that I did or that happened was it was really easy to find people to promote. So we would end up with all these different, you know, I could just partner with people who had an audience of authors and say, hey, let me teach all the authors in your community how to do email marketing. And as part of it, maybe some of them will end up signing up for ConvertKit. And people, were, you know, compared to the attention I was getting before, people were lining up to promote ConvertKit and to, you know, have me come talk to their communities. So that was really impressive. But then the third thing that was less fortunate is about a month and a half, a month or month and a half into this, I realized that the people we were attracting were total beginners. They were the ones not, like when I said author, I I was thinking like, oh, someone, you know, has a really successful book. They're either on the New York Times list or they're aiming for it or something like that. And really what we ended up attracting was a lot of people who, you know, their dream was someday to self-publish a book on the Kindle store and, you know, they still had to build their writing habit and writing is really hard and, you know, and they didn't have a lot of money to dedicate to the hobby. And, and so then they would sign up for an account and then cancel after a month or two. And so I started to think, okay, I thought authors was the best term, but maybe, maybe it's not. And I, I started digging more and and that's when I came to professional bloggers. So saying it's for serious people right putting the professional in there but then anyone who's not a professional blogger they they aspire to be so why not get the tools that the professionals are are using so that that was kind of that shift there were plenty of people who said like oh I'm not a blogger I'm a podcaster but they were in the space enough and they
0: understood the term that,
1: that it totally yep. worked
0: I'm one of them as well I'm a convert kid fan
1: yeah yeah and so we've got you know a lot of people in that space who you know, if you're a podcaster, you understand blogging as well. And so you're like, generally, people were like, great, if it works for bloggers, it'll, it'll work for me. Yeah. And in there, the other thing that made a big difference is we started doing direct sales. So I would reach out to specific bloggers, try to get them on board. I'd carve out a specific niche for like men's fashion bloggers, paleo recipe bloggers, you know, things like that to try to really go after a niche that we already had a little bit of traction and then get, you know, four or five or 10 other customers in that niche. And that paid off really well. And then later on we broadened to creators because we were starting to get musicians and artists and filmmakers and chefs and, you know, and it's like, okay, creators is all encompassing. And then you don't have to do that. Like, but I'm a podcaster, not a blogger sort of dance. It's like, we're all creators, but we're yeah. all still so different from like the, the real estate small business or the cupcake shop or whatever else.
0: Exactly. I think also one thing it helped you as well with and I think it's excellent that you use is sort of the social proof and ambassadors that you have. So you've managed as well, like as a result of doubling down and having a really specific focus and niche to be able to find some really big and influential people in the space to help promote your product as well. And sort of, I think, to be honest, if I remember the first time I came across ConvertKit might have even been either from Pat Flynn uh, or actually another fellow podcaster, Louis Grenier, like one or two of them, I think. One or two of those places I heard about it, but uh, it was just really good to see sort of like how well you're using the influencers in the space and uh, having your focus, I guess it allowed you really to pick the right ones as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that played a huge role. So Pat was an early influencer for us and he got us a ton of customers. And then like that would be one example and then another would be, now they're good friends of mine, Seth and Katie, who run Wellness Mama. Which is a massive health and wellness blog. They came on and they actually signed up for ConvertKit the same day Pat did in July 2015. And they both moved over giant lists and it was a fun day. I think our MRR went from 10,000 a month to 15,000 a month in that single day. But then, you know, they were influencers and promoting as well once they got set up and going. So you ended up with still within the blogger, podcaster sort of community, Pat really promoting and talking about ConvertKit to his audience. And then Seth. And Katie to their audience. And then just as more people came on, it got a lot of traction. So creators and bloggers ended up being a great market because, like, I don't know, let's say we're just doing business at the local chamber of commerce and serving small businesses. Yeah. If I love your product, I might tell like two or three friends who also run businesses and it could be a good fit for. Yeah. But in this case, like bloggers like Pat and others, when they love ConvertKit, they're like, great, let me just tell 10,000 of my closest friends. No big deal. You know, and so even in the case, like there's just a lot of traction there. And then you get a little powered by ConvertKit that shows up at the bottom of some opt-in forms and emails and it just really goes a long ways.
0: Absolutely. And then how did this sort of uh, switch and focus, like influence your product strategy as well? Was there any influence from that side as well?
1: Well, so the first thing is going after bloggers or creators, I knew who I could listen to feedback from and who I could ignore. As you have those first customers, people are like, oh man, if you built this feature, it, you know, then you'd unlock so much growth. And if it, that was coming from a creator and it was, you know, a creator focused feature, then I'd really listen and think about it. But if it was coming from someone who was doing direct marketing or ran a sales team and wanted a integration with, you know, Salesforce or something like that, then I'd think hard about it and go, I don't, I don't think this is the right fit. Um, so that's kind of where like the way that I think about it is it, it lets you know, okay, this is where I'm going. This is who I'm serving long-term. And then you can filter all of your product feedback through that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and like really knowing what weight to give feedback as well. Cause I think that's one of the biggest right. challenges a lot of the times is you receive so many, so much feedback and people I think struggle like specifically not having a niche of knowing what feedback's important and whatnot. So at this point as well, like before you started to double down on the niche and have a clear focus, from one end, you said sort of like growth was struggling at that point, and then this sort of unlocked new growth for you. Did yep. you see a difference in terms as well, in terms of the retention of customers once you really had that focus and had doubled down on the niche? Was there any sort of positive uh, effects on that side as well?
1: I think there was, but the numbers at that point were so small so
0: that- small. That-
1: you know, calculating percentage churn when you're at 5,000 in MRR um, oh, yes. just yes. doesn't really You're just make getting sense. noise. Yeah. Yeah, and then it can swing wildly. And actually, we even still face this today. Like, if a $2,000 a month customer cancels or, you know, something like that, revenue churn will, will spike like, you know, 0.4%. And you're like, okay, that's annoying, you know? Yeah. So you have to be careful and look at just these things over a large aggregate. I would say that, everything did trend down overall, but I don't know that it was that huge of a difference.
0: I think you make a valid point as well. And I think this is often like early stage is not to get too lost in the numbers as well because uh, they can have a very, very big variance if uh, one of your biggest customers leaves and then automatically you see a spike in churn. So it's also like, I think this is something to talk about a lot on the podcast, but it's really good to have a good grasp and good understanding of the metrics early on. But when it comes to sort of understanding and engaging the product, you also need to have that balance between qualitative feedback and quantitative data, because sometimes you just get too much noise with the data. Um, Yep,
1: for sure. And I think, you know, anything over 10,000 or anything under probably 10, 20,000 of MRR you don't really care about the percentage that's churning. You should care about who specifically is churning and why.
0: And what you can uh, learn from them. Yep. So then you you went on. So this was like, how long ago did you switch over to creators? Well,
1: that's a good question. We had a lot of traction when we switched over. We were maybe at 500000 a month in revenue or something. So so I don't know when that would be. 2017 maybe?
0: All right. So it's still been a couple of years. Yeah. I think I've been a customer now for maybe just over a year or just under a year. Like when I launched the podcast, we're actually coming up on uh, the year mark now uh, every day oh, nice. for a year for almost the last 50 something weeks. And I remember coming a customers, looking at your pricing and packaging at the time and being a new podcast. Like uh, I was expecting to sort of find a, a plan that would be able to help me get started. And there wasn't anything at the time, but like I was really investing in the podcast. I was serious about it and I wanted to make it work. I think maybe I associated myself with <laughs> the pro side uh, naively to begin with. And I, and I see recently as well that you've also gone under sort of a pricing and packaging change now. Can you talk us through that change a bit, sort of what motivated it? What, what was the thought process behind it?
1: Yeah. So first the, well, I'm trying to think where I should start. Start with the thought process or start with the change maybe on the thought process side, a few trends that we're noticing in our business is focusing on, I guess a couple of things. Churn is relatively high. So hovering around, uh, say four and a half to 5% user churn and just slightly lower on the revenue churn side. Uh, that's per month. And that's just churn as it's calculated by barometrics. So there's nothing fancy in there. Sometimes when you hear people yeah. talk about churn, they're, they're like, oh, we don't count anything in the first 90 days. The first like, ninety days, yeah, churn is. <laughs> you know, so it's just, Straight churn, and then we were finding that our lowest priced accounts, so it started twenty nine dollars a month for up to a thousand email subscribers, had the highest churn. So when you split it out, when you looked at net churn, you're looking at a twelve percent uh, churn on those accounts, and then a net negative churn on every other plan. You know, because as well. if someone's got five thousand subscribers, they're going to grow to eight, and they're going to grow to ten, and and they upgrade from there. So we yeah. realized. Um, that there's just an incredible amount of churn being driven at the low end. And then the next thing that we saw as we kind of dug into this further is all of the cancellation reasons that people had coming in. They were saying, usually it's too expensive, or I'm not ready to start my online business or, or get going. And so you have those factors. And then the final factor was that we added this onboarding survey there's a concept in user experience called gradual engagement. And it's basically that instead of asking for somebody to do something big up front, like fill out a registration form or something like that, you can ask them really simple questions that where it's like A or B to draw them in. And then once they're a little bit invested, they will um, be more likely to fill in an email address or password or some more of those things. So we put in the signup survey that just asked them, Hey, are you just, are you, migrating from another tool or are you brand new to email marketing? And a ton of people were picking brand new. So we get get about 8,000 trials a month and roughly 6,000 of them were brand new or a little more. And then within there, if you said you're brand new, it would ask, do you have a website yet or not? And about 5,000 trials a month were saying, I don't have a website. And so if you think about the number of people who are coming in, who don't have a website yet and and are trying to use an email marketing service, like they're not going to be successful. So the first thing that we did based on that is that we built out a landing pages product. We'd always had landing pages as part of ConvertKit, but like tiny, you know, there were four templates. And and so basically over the last year we built out landing pages. So all these people who are saying, I want to build an audience, but I don't have a website yet can jump in and do that and can have a great experience doing it. So that that worked really well. We're starting to see a ton of traction there. But then that only solves part of the problem. Um, the other part is people canceling because they're not ready or churning out. And really having to pay before they find success. And so rather than going for a much longer trial or something else, we decided that it's time to go to a free plan. And so five weeks ago, we released a free version of ConvertKit that includes you know, building landing pages and thank you pages and growing your email list for up to a hundred subscribers. And then, well, actually, I guess I, I should split it up in a few different ways. It includes all the landing pages, opt-in forms, and thank you pages, and so you can grow your list. And then we have a referral feature in there where if you invite a friend, basically for every friend you invite, you get an additional hundred subscribers managed for free. So kind of Dropbox style. Yeah, and that you can do up to a thousand subscribers. And that's been going. So we've had all of that out for five weeks now. We have 13,000 free users that have signed up in that time. Oh. About 2,000 of them come from that referral invite a friend feature. And we're just kind of like, that's our initial first take at it. But overall, it's going well. And we expect, I mean, a big change that we expect right away is for churn to, to drop. Because all these people before who were signing up, trying it, and then canceling and showing up in our churn numbers yep. are now just going to be on free and stay on free until they find value. So churn should go through the floor, but we'll see if new revenue goes to the floor to match because that obviously wouldn't be good.
0: Yeah, uh, and I think that's probably to be expected as well that you see the dip in revenue considering that you had so many paying you before. But I think one of the things as well that's often overlooked as well in these cases is uh, that's short-term gains, the revenue there. But if you have these customers with you, they grow with you and then you have expansion and they end up sticking with you, Uh, sort of looking at sort of the long-term effects on being able to retain more freemium users and then being able to, as you've so effectively done now already with the referral program, like these interests compound uh, with the retention and the referral mechanism and word of mouth, like eventually really driving it. I think uh, you can afford to have some short-term losses to like gain some long-term gains as well.
1: Yeah. And just for anyone considering going to freemium, um, like a, Big concern for us, and what I wish I could have found more information online about, is like what happens to those existing users who now qualify for the free plan, and like how many are going to downgrade. So we actually did all the math. We looked up, you know, out of all of our twenty-eight thousand paying customers, how many of them have under a hundred subscribers? So that's the number that you know most people in the free plan are going to get to really easily. Yeah. And how many would downgrade? And we found there's like a frighteningly high number. It was nine thousand um, customers, which at $29 a month represents almost a quarter million a month of MRR. So, you know, at the time that we're recording this, we've got just shy of 1.7 million a month of MRR. So we're at a little over 20 million ARR. So it, it would be just a massive, massive hit to our business. And that's like more than our monthly profit or right at our monthly profit to lose 250 grand of MRR. So we're like, uh, okay, we can't have that so we had to really be deliberate about how we roll out our you know our free plan so we, we as we're trying to decide what to include in it what not to two things we held back were automations which is a really important part of our product but you can still you know get that new podcast off the ground using our landing pages and then grow your email list and then just use broadcast emails to get started and then once yeah. you've got a couple hundred subscribers then you know you're like okay this podcast is happening let's upgrade to paid and You know, let's go from there. So that, and then, you know, we didn't provide in-app support. So for anyone on the free plan, we launched a community and we drive everyone to the community for, for support. So those are the big changes. And then we kind of released it and we're like, you know, email their whole list, let everybody know and waited to see how many downgrades came in. And in the month of January is blown away. So we could have had up to two hundred fifty thousand of MRR contraction based on this, and we had just about five thousand a month of contraction. Wow. so I was like, oh, okay, must
0: have helped you sleep easier a lot. Oh, for sure, (laughs) big bold bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so we still grew by a little over thirty thousand of net new MRR in January, even when we, you know, made a move to like blow up our whole business model. And so I was like, okay, we're gonna have more contractions. We go into February and March. Yeah. But, like not a crazy amount, and so now we're just getting more aggressive with promoting our free plan and trying lots more experiments.
0: I'd be super interested to hear how it goes over the next like five to six months and uh for sure, yeah, that's an interesting time, definitely, considering it's only five weeks old. Did you notice anything in like this first cohort now, so you maybe had a month's cohort of like month one retention? Was there change, or is it still too early for you to see? People are a lot more engaged a initially. About a weeks with.
1: You know, there's just there's not a clean cohort yet. We've been like releasing gradually and all that. We've seen our visit to account created signup rate go from three percent to five percent. Um so that was that's a nice little lift. We're trying to get that to eight percent over time. You know, that's kind of our initial goal. So I don't know that we've seen much else. It's been it's been so new, and there's so many things in our data that we are having to tweak or or get right from our numbers. So, like one big thing is, like we're still figuring out. Okay, now that we're free, what's our definition of an active, like an active user? Is it just yeah. they logged in that month, or do they have to get at least five subscribers first, or publish a landing page, or what?
0: So we're a still a bunch of our experimentation dashboards. and understanding now a little bit better the model. Yep, exactly.
1: You know, the other thing is how many free users we can get to refer. I think I have some metrics there that I'll pull up right now. Yeah, so we've had almost 2,000 referred accounts created. And they're, if someone sends a referral invite, they're getting accepted at a rate of about 20%.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, and so that's another number that we can tweak. Yeah. So we're kind of just watching all these different things, uh, starting to set up cohort analysis of okay, what what makes this cohort refer? There's one other thing that I wanted to share. Oh, the next big experiment that we're doing, actually launching tomorrow, is sort of a flipped onboarding funnel. So right now, you you create a free account, and then you can build forms and landing pages. Yep. And we're flipping it where when you come to the site, you'll just be able to start building a landing page. And then it's sort of like choose your template, you start customizing it, and then from there it will say, hey, this is looking pretty good. Why don't you save your work? And in saving your work, it asks for an email or
0: password. Going back to your earlier points as well of sort of having that vested interest and then asking for the details. Yeah, Yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's another further implementation of, of gradual engagement, which is like my favorite onboarding idea. Yeah. And then the idea is like to get a successful user, I need them to create a landing page. So why not just have them create a landing page first? So... I'm going to launch all of that. I'm actually launching it on a product hunt tomorrow morning. So we'll see how that goes. But I think that'll get a good amount of traction. And that's what I'm hoping will further increase our visitor to uh, free account created conversion yeah. rate while maintaining like a good, good number of active users. You know, because I don't just want like to increment the user column <laughs> in the database. I want like users that are active and getting value and publishing landing pages
0: yeah but i think this is also an excellent way of sort of meeting the product with marketing in in, an exceptional way in the sense that a lot of times like where we create marketing campaigns we drive to websites they sign up and they start trying to use the product and then they realize the product's not for them but this way it sounds like they arrive on their site they start using the product and then they decide it's for them and they sign up so i think in, in one sense as well you also have a really big uptick in retention just as a result of like really allowing users to play around, feel if it's right for them first and then get started. Uh, yep.
1: I think it'll make a big difference.
0: I think we'll definitely need a follow-up episode on these two topics. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. One random question Nathan: uh, Nathan. How is it like to grow up with uh, two first names? as a name and surname? Uh,
1: yeah. You know, it doesn't actually come up that often. Yeah. So with Nathan Very. But I have an uncle whose first name, he married the family. But his first name is Barry. And okay. that was the first time I had this moment of like, wait, why is my last name the same as your first name? You know, I remember being like nine years old and be like, yeah. I don't, huh? i don't
0: know. Um, obviously, I'm asking because my name's Andrew Michael. And like, yes. I get this all the time. Like, uh, I go to a government office and they'll say, what's your surname? And then I'll say, it's Michael. And they'll say, no, 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 what's your surname? And I have to explain to him, like, I'm 34 years old now. I think I've learned my surname <laughs> by this age. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, man. You know, the other thing that my team does is they like to use Barry um, yeah. as a replacement for Very. Okay. And so they're like, oh, that's a very good design. Or that's, a, <laughs> well, actually, my car. I, I don't know, a year and a half or so ago, I got a Tesla Model S, and nice. um, my COO came to visit at one point because we're a remote company. I'm in, in Boise, Idaho. He's in Portland, Oregon. And um, he came to visit. He was driving the car for some reason. And I get in after him and I realized he's renamed the car, very good Tesla. And I've actually, it's now a year and a half later. And I've, it's still the still same. Its name.
0: Yeah. Nice. Uh, well, going back to the, the topic of the show then, uh, yeah. something I ask every guest that joins and I'd love to get you input on as well is, uh, let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that uh, you've joined a new company and you arrived at the company and churner retention is not doing great. And you've been tasked by the CEO of this company to try and help turn things around. And you've been given 90 days to try and like get some results for the company. What would you be doing in those first 90 days to try and uh, turn things around for them?
1: Yeah, I would start with conversations with users. Both the users that we say, you know, we've decided are most successful and those that are churned and I'd I'd separate them and the churned users into two different cohorts. Um, One, the churn, the active churned users. So they found value with the product. In our case, it'd be like, you know, they added our forms to their website and they imported subscribers and they were really using the product and they they churned, you know, so why is that? And then the other one is the, you know, they signed up and started paying, but honestly they, they never onboarded. And I think you do a huge disservice when you lump those two groups of people into a single number because it's just, it's so messy and confusing and, and all of that. So one will tell you if your product's not very good and like competition is stealing all your best users. And then the other will tell you if you're onboarding and your product, but largely your onboarding and activation is not very good and you're just not getting people onboarded. Because if it's the second one, then I would start by putting someone specifically on it where it's just like, great. I will, I mean, it depends on the size of the business and all that, but just onboard every single user yourself. I said, great, you know, schedule a call. We'll set you up right now. I mean, that's what we did. We migrated every user from MailChimp or Aweber or Infusionsoft and built out their funnels for them and did it on on calls. And that turns out human activation like that works pretty well.
0: Yeah. And it's an excellent way to then figure out what scales or what you need to try and scale and then go from there. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an interesting aspect. I think also that you mentioned like making sure that you group them into different buckets uh, is also critical, like understanding, like you say, what is part of like the product fault and maybe the competition, having a better product, but then also like having a clear understanding of what percentage of a churn is coming just from bad onboarding. I think is key because this is something that comes up a lot in the show that obviously onboarding is one of the biggest areas and biggest opportunities, but, uh, what you just sort of explained now is a way as well to try and understand uh, what percentage is coming from bad onboarding. So yeah. I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Yeah. So
1: on, I have a thought on onboarding that I want to come back to, but um, really quick, in the way that we sort out churn between user churn and revenue churn, and it tells us different things, I think as an industry, we should be separating out, I don't know what to call it, active churn versus deadweight churn or yeah you know but i would like to see that that separate and then i'd like to see those buckets of so it's almost a, a quadrant of Ugh. four ways Where on our left axis we've got you know the two options are active or inactive customers or active versus never onboarded customers you know, never found value and then you know on the um on the bottom axis it would be you know user churn and revenue churn so you can see how that breaks out now into four buckets yeah,
0: um, I think I think this makes a lot of sense uh, as well. Definitely in the sense also that I think one question that was posed early on in the podcast show I think it was actually andres Perd from Outfunnel. He was interested to find out what percentage of SaaS businesses active subscriptions are dormant. Oh, it's and, a lot, and it's a lot. Yes, and I think like what you're saying as well as like having a measure of this as well is also really interesting to understand. Okay of uh, the customers that churned, how many of them were actually uh, dormant customers and just sort of like, at the moment, I think we're classified as delinquent churn when the credit card eventually expires or, or whatnot, but I'm right. sure a lot before it could be to do with what you're saying is like never having onboarded correctly, not ever being activated and uh, just end up just signing up for something and forgetting about it and just like eventually something happened that was out of your control and ended up churning that
1: yeah or they just decide oh i'm not gonna like they see it on the credit card bill and they're like oh i haven't thought about convertkit in three months all right i should just cancel it you know and so it's not technically delinquent churn at that point but they were never they never got value
0: and
1: and that's so different than the person who's like using convertkit for their blog every day and they're like oh i'm gonna switch to mailchimp or i'm gonna do something else absolutely you, you shouldn't buckle those together okay onboarding thoughts here i think everyone does onboarding wrong when people talk about onboarding they say okay here you are, you're, I don't know, you're the new head of onboarding. You got brought in to solve this activation problem. Everybody's not getting accounts set up and they're turning out because of it. Everyone's going around saying, okay, what in-app action can I do? Let's do tool tips. Let's do a product tour. Like let's tweak the emails. And I think it's largely a waste of time. Yeah, I think instead you should, re- <laughs> I don't, maybe this is harsh, um, but it's what we did. You should reevaluate your entire product, at least the first, the first whole section that people interact with. So we spent a ton of time in our product, adding tool tips and checklists and, and guided product tours and improving our videos and stuff like that. And it, it all helped, but it didn't make a huge difference. But then what we did is all the changes that I just talked about of saying, okay, we're going to scrap the entire signup flow. Forget it. I don't even want your email address until you've already successfully built a landing page. We're going to flip that entire funnel and start from scratch. And then you know, on our marketing site, we're actually going to have, now we have three or four different flows. So depending on if you're migrating from another tool or if you're starting from scratch, it it sends you down these different paths. And so we really said, okay, what does success look like as a user of our product? And we realized, oh, okay, it's it's getting a landing page built for all these beginners. And so we just got rid of everything that wasn't helping people accomplish that one goal. Yeah. And the nice thing is we could spin it up in a, in a separate product flow. So it doesn't mess with everybody who's saying like they're coming in from migrating from another tool or they're from on our pricing page. So we can test all of these things. But I guess my point overall is that I think people need to be far more radical with their onboarding. And if you just, Give that task to to some growth marketer or some product manager and say, I don't know, figure out how to tweak our onboarding to get it from eight percent activation to nine percent. Then, of course, they're going to do incremental things. But you need like a designer and executive backing and and a, and a whole initiative to say, like, all right, screw everything that we have now. If we could start from scratch, how would we do it? How would we achieve this outcome of a truly successful customer? And. You know, that's my advice right now. I guess we'll see how it plays out for ConvertKit over the next six ConvertKit.
0: months. Yeah, but I think it's it's absolutely right as well in the sense that like uh, tool tips and messages like emails can only move the needle so much. And especially like thinking about a new user coming into your product, I think so much, so too often, like we get caught up in our own biases and we think things are really easy or things are really straightforward. And we think we know it's best for our customers, but really sometimes I'm just saying it's like really, breaking it down to the bare essentials, like what does this customer absolutely need to be to be successful and let's help them get there and do that and then create a habit out of that. And then from there, like show them the rest of the product, I think definitely is the way to go. So I'm agreeing with you on this one because I've seen it play out many times as well uh, in previous companies too. Great point. So, Nathan, it's been excellent having you on the show today. I think uh, we're running up on time now. Is there anything, final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? How can they keep up to speed with what's going on at uh, ConvertKit?
1: Yeah, well, I think final thoughts is just, um, I mean, I I always go back to Gail Goodman's talk from Business of Software years ago about the SaaS, uh, long, slow ramp of death, and basically just that reminder that SaaS takes forever. And so even as all these changes, you're like not making progress on churn or whatever else, like keep in mind, keep at it, talk to more users. And it's just going to take a long time. But the nice thing is you've got recurring revenue. It's worth it. The business is going to be highly valued. So like keep chipping away at the problem. Just don't let yourself get, uh, get totally discouraged in the meantime. I'd say how to follow me. You know, I write a lot on my blog at NathanBerry.com and the whole ConvertKit story and all the way along is there if you want to follow along with our metrics and see like can we actually move the needle on churn what is churn sitting at today i'm gonna to look but if you go to convertkit.bearmetrics.com, that's all there updated in real time you can see our mrr and everything else revenue churn is currently sitting at percent. so that's high we'll see how uh, the next six months go I'm trying to drop that down and then twitter I'm always on Twitter, at Nathan Berry. Those would be the places to follow me. And then if you want to use ConvertKit, I think that would be awesome. And you can now sign up for free at ConvertKit.com.
0: Yeah, I definitely recommend that. Uh, so like I said, I've been using it for over a year now. I'm super happy with the service. So, well, it's been a pleasure having you today, Nathan, and uh wish you the best of luck now. Probably, like I said, I'd love to have you back in the next six to eight months as well to hear how these next two experiments go with your freemium and the update as well to the onboarding. So, good luck Sounds going good. forward. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you are able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.